We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to helping Christian leaders bring peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of God are central to discipleship. We publish teachings for leaders, resources for learners, and host interviews with frontline faith leaders about various topics. Our aim is to love the church, and we want to help you become the peace of Jesus wherever you are. Welcome, everyone. In this season of We the Peace, we are exploring Jesus-centered theology. We have been learning that for our theology to be Jesus-centered, we must honor the global village of Bible interpreters instead of prioritizing Western theology as the way to understand and follow Jesus. When we do this, we will begin to decolonize our faith. Understanding theology and a global perspective will help us achieve this. We are in the interviews for this season, and we are with the one and only Sandra. That's right. First name basis, not because we're best friends. We really don't know each other that well, but she's really well known. So we're just going to call her Sandra, speaker, consultant, preacher, ED of Chasing Justice and co-founder and author of a book that released a while ago called The Next Worship, Glorifying God in a diverse world. Hi, Sandra. How are you? I'm glad to be here with you guys. Yeah, doing good. Thanks for being on. Hey, for those that might not know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I am uh, the daughter of two immigrants that came in the 60s. So um, since our immigration policy was last changed and uh, I grew up uh, just outside of Chicago, well, in Chicago and then just outside of Chicago. And I'm an author, activist, I'm a pastor, I'm a mom, I'm, I'm a neighbor, I'm all these things. And I'm my like love in life is to try to ask as many difficult questions as possible and disturb as many people as I can. So good. Yeah. Hence <laughs> chasing justice and the org that you lead. Um, anybody that follows Sandra knows that. So tell us a little bit about your theological journey. And we're asking that in the context of a season where we're exploring how to decenter Western theology, not because it's all bad, but because it's prioritized in so many spaces. So what has been your theological journey? Let us know. I was raised in a very, very devout uh, Catholic home. And so I was um, exposed to prayer and mass and church going very, very early on. And um, it deeply shaped how I understood the world and what we should care about. And so um, from my abuela's, my grandmother's prayers and watching her um, even into her very, very frail older age, kneeling at her bed and praying the rosary and um, making us learn the Our Father in, uh, in Spanish and all the things that she would do um, and attending mass with her that very deeply shaped my understanding of community and life and God. And then my parents, um, interestingly, this is actually an interesting story, my theological journey, my Mom um, also was, you know, she took us to all the things, you know, we had our first communion, we got confirmed, we went um, to catechism classes in our, in our local parish, all of that. 
Um, and my father actually um, was not very, um, like he didn't attend church all that often. He wasn't kind of into that, you know, spiritual stuff. My father's from Argentina yeah. and Argentina, like Europe is kind of post God, you know, uh, it was like not really a thing, not really incorporated. Whereas in Colombia, where my mom is from, um, there's just a lot of religion is very much a part of, and faith is very much a part of the fabric of the society. And so my father, when I was a teenager, um, had in a, uh, an awakening experience, a faith awakening experience through a Southern Baptist church. And um, he like dragged us all from the Catholic experience to a Baptist experience. And the rest is history. I ended up spending some time in the mega church and spending some time in Kojic churches and spending right. some time in charismatic churches. So I think my my experience was that there was something happening in all these different expressions um, and communities that was informing how I saw the world. Um, and then as a college student, I was a part of a campus ministry that introduced me to the depth of scripture study. And, um, and then I ended up in ministry and getting a seminary degree and all, you know, the rest of that. But, um, I think for me, there was just exposure to a lot of different kinds of faith practices. And even though I didn't have names for what I was experiencing, it was, definitely a a journey of understanding how different communities see God and see themselves and see their place in the world. Thanks for sharing that. It sounds like you have bounced around to different denominational faith expressions, Catholic, Protestant. That's very interesting. At what point in your journey in understanding God and theology did you kind of realize, okay, I'm steeped in this broader category of like Western theology and thought? Was it a moment, a book, a time that it hit you? Was it something always you knew? At, at what point did you have that realization? Probably when I was in my first couple of year, years of ministry, Okay, I was attending a mega church, a very large influential mega church. And I was working for a campus ministry that was historically white. And I had um, spent so much time in kind of white faith spaces, both mainline, you know, Pentecostal, Protestant, evangelical, all those different kinds. But, but in that season, after my, you know, congregating with my grandma at mass, I think it was almost all white exclusively, yeah. except for a short stint in a Kojic church in a black um, a charismatic church. And so um, when I came on staff, I remember, um, in, into ministry, I remember thinking like, oh, why do I believe this? Like wh- who shaped me to think that, um, faith was so individualized. Like it's all about your personal walk with Jesus, your personal and individual expression of faith, your personal. And so mm. I think it, I was being mentored at the time by a Japanese American, um, um, supervisor who actually wrote a book called kingdom come. I don't know if it's in print still, um, but it's fantastic. So if you can get it, you could get it used, um, on Amazon, but, um, and it really was about how Jesus wants to change the world. And it was kind of like some, you know, common good theology with some Dallas Willard with some like, uh, of his own Asian American kind of growing up in a Japanese American church experience. And it really was broadening my, my understanding to like that, that faith was more than just about me. Like it was more than just about what I wanted and what I was praying and, 
and what I needed from God, but it was about being not only the hands and feet of Jesus, but about being a community whose presence influenced the space around them. And so we would talk about the images in the Chronicles of Narnia and and, and the, the image of Aslan, you know, like wherever this King Aslan went, there was springtime. And what would it look like on our campus if wherever our students were present, it was springtime. And so I think in that, in that kind of season, I began to understand that the way I understood faith has been, had been passed on to me really through a white Western individualistic lens. And that began the journey. So that began a journey of realizing, okay, I've been shaped through an individualistic white lens. How did you get from that point to, all right, Western theology can actually be a danger to engage in for people of color or broad, like I'm a white guy for, for even like white folks to be engaging in that. Why decenter it? Yeah. Well, when you've been taking up so much space for such a long time, you know, it's time to step aside and let other people talk. So, um, I think, um, I think for me, it was like this realization. It's a little bit every, I mean, none of us wake up one day and we're like, we need to decolonize and deconstruct. That's not how it happens. Like, and if Mm. that's your journey, then you need to slow your roll. I think, because it is really a question of like, what are the things that have shaped me and how are they good Mm. and how are they bad? And, and how are they just different? You know, like they're just different neutral in the sense of like a cultural difference or um, how you see things from a different social location. So I think for me, it really was, I I don't know that there was a time. I think there were seasons like the more exposure I got to the global church through the work I was doing with the Urbana Missions Conference and with global projects and urban projects and global urban tracks. Um, I was spending time in Egypt for months at a time. I was spending time in the Dominican Republic. I was going to China. I was learning from uh, my neighbors here on the West Side. And I I was being shaped and understanding that, oh, the way I practice things isn't the right way to practice things. It's mm. just a way to practice things. And so how did I learn that this was the right way, I realized that there were um, some actual cultural deficiencies in Western ways of thinking. For example, um, Western thinking is very dichotomistic. Like it's like, it's either, it's either, or, you know, so if something is different, therefore you have to put it in a category. Like if it's different, something is either good or bad, better or worse. It can't just be like, Oh, flowers. There's many, you know, Um, there's just the best flower. So it would be as if to tell someone like, I'm so glad you want to get, you know, flowers for your significant other, but you can only ever buy roses. And we all know that roses die within like three days. Okay. So, and they don't even smell good anymore. So um, why not get other kinds of flowers? Why not mix a bouquet? You know? So I think the idea that, that Westerners have that it, it it's not very holistic. It can't include as much diversity. Whereas people that live in South Asia, for example, I mean, there's hundreds of languages and cultures and different, and they just, they coexist together. And not that there aren't problems, but they're just more used to that. And so I think Western theology, whether in Europe, Australia, or North America, it's shaped by colonization. It's shaped by white supremacy. It's shaped by a, a, a way of thinking that says, you know, they're different. So therefore they're savages, you know, they're different. So therefore they're um, you know, it's, it's inferior versus just, oh, wow, look at the way they do things. They care for the earth. That might be something we want to learn about. And so the ideas that we carry, the way in which we think as Westerners automatically centers someone, there has to be someone that is the best. And the rest of us are just kind of hyphenated around them. 
And so, yeah, so I think that's that's kind of how I've understood it over time. And in the book, I, I was asked to contribute to a book called Still Evangelical, which was edited by Mark Laberton, um, who is the president of Fuller. And oh, I was like, man, do I want to answer this? This is right after it was it was right after the election of, of President Trump. And wow. um, it was asking people people within the church to say, would you still consider yourself evangelical considering what, what just happened in this election? And I said, you know, lots of things. You guys can read the chapter. Um, (laughs) They gave me like three days to write it or something. So I just said what was on my mind. Um, And one of the things I talked about in it is that America's one of the reasons I wouldn't call myself an evangelical or I'm not prone to call myself that is because evangelicals don't consider me. It's not that I don't consider myself in that kind of uh, tradition of theology. It's that when evangelicals meet to talk about things, they never consider me. Wow. Um, gatherings, you know, conferences, published books that talk about the future of the church. It's still happening. Even this week, there were three more. And and it's like no women of color there. I mean, so who is the future of the church then? Mm-hmm. Who are these people? And so I think in that experience, it's like the Western church in all of its structures, not individuals, all of its structures communicate that there is a universal donor. There is a universal right answer and that's called theology. Yeah. And the rest of us are hyphenated. Latin American theology, liberation theology, black theology, womanist theology, everyone else has a hyphen. But then when you take your three theology courses in seminary, they're just called theology one, theology two, and theology three. And it's only Western authors and only Western historians and only curated Western voices. And so I'm O negative blood type. I'm not going to ask you your blood type, but I'm O negative. Don't come after me, folks. (laughs) But if you know anything about O negative, we are the universal donor. And so we get called by these blood banks all the time because everybody can use our blood. Yeah, Like it doesn't harm anyone. And so I wrote in, in that book that I really believe that Western theology and the Western church sees itself as the universal donor. Everybody can receive from us. Everybody can learn from us. Everybody has to answer to us, but we actually can't receive from anyone because as a universal donor, O negative, I can't receive anybody's blood, but an O negative. And so I can't and refuse to receive from anybody else. And so that has how we set things up in the publishing industry, in the academia, in conferencing. I mean, we have conferences called the global, the global such and such and such. And all all it is, all these conferences are, are a bunch of people from the U.S. and from the West mostly white, telling the rest of the world how they ought to live out their faith, yeah. how they ought to plant their churches. So anyway, you're not going to go all day long on that. But I so think good. for me, it was like, oh, gosh, here we are again. Like you're at the middle again. Like you don't notice that no one else is here again. And if you're not in that group, you ab- you absolutely know you're missing. If you are a part of the dominant group with the dominant voice, then you have to be taught to see that we're missing. So what was it like when you did get to seminary and you're having all these realizations? I mean, did you just kind of bite your lip and go, I want to get through this. I want to learn. Were you still discovering as you went? I interviewed one participant for this season who said her realizations happened when she got to Duke and it was exploring that 
What was seminary like for you as a woman of color? Okay, so I did not go to, I was not as lucky to go to a place like Duke where there would have been at least some diversity. So I was the only woman in most of my classes, except for like the introductory classes, the counseling students and general kind of masters of theology students took. Um, And even then it was like, you know, a sprinkling, a small sprinkling of women. So I was definitely the only woman of color in every single class after the first year. And there were a handful, there were like two other black women, maybe three or four Asian women that were there, but we were not in the same classes. So it was usually me and a room full of khakis and blue shirts. Um, And oh yeah, my husband one time came to class to pick me up and I didn't notice he was in the room. And he was like, I've been in here for 10 minutes and you didn't notice. I was like, literally, you look like everybody else in here. (laughs) Like you're wearing the same outfit. You have the same, you have the same goatee. You have the same haircut. Like y'all look the same to me. So I didn't even notice he was in there. And um, I had gone to seminary just so, you know, I had gone to seminary after 10, 10 plus years of ministry. Yeah. So I, I was not like trying to figure out my call and having to be traumatized by patriarchy and white supremacy in my seminary. I was, I knew my call Yeah. and I, I was in my call and I was already working in collaboration with the global church and with different organizations. I was already speaking and consult. I mean, I was like, I was not new to this thing called ministry. And yet I was like terrorized every day by people's comments in class, um, by the things they assumed, by the things they said, by the things that were allowed to be said in my presence. Mm. And every day for the 45 minutes to an hour home, I like just cussed everything, everybody out on the way home. I would tell my husband about everything. Like you wouldn't believe what this person said in class about, I mean, just, isn't that like the arrogance of the American church to think that or like, and every day there was something that had happened. Right. Yeah. Um, so honestly it was a pretty traumatic, you know, six plus years I was part-time. So it took me a long time to get through it, but I listened and I learned the concerns that were behind all of the things people were showing all the performing, you know, I don't know what to call it. Yeah. Um, but I, I learned what were the concerns, like what was really the concern of this professor what was really the concern people had about a distorted theology of justice and all this stuff they were always warning us about. And I think it made me better at what I do because I understand it's not like people are trying to be oppressive. They just sometimes don't know how their actions are impacting others. And sometimes they change their actions, but they're not aware that their narrative is still deeply embedded, like how they view others is so deeply embedded. Yeah. Um, and so it takes time for people to change. But, you know, if I had to go back and do it again, I would go to the same place and I would do the same. I, I would do what I did because I, I feel like it prepared me to stand in the chasm that is, you know, the distance between uh, BIPOC Christians and white Christians yeah. in our country. Thanks for sharing. Sandra, a few things that I've heard thus far that helped you in your journey to embrace a global view of Jesus or a global theology. One, you said you were mentored by Japanese American person while you were doing campus ministry, if I got that correctly. And second, you started traveling and getting involved in a bunch of different leadership settings around the world, which opened your horizon to other ways of doing things. Were there any other themes that you look back on to say, oh, this was key in in really like recognizing the dangers of the Western mindset 
and Western modes of theologizing, getting the right mentors. I'm hearing that traveling and just exposing yourself to other theologies and other, are there any other themes that come to your mind when you look back over your life? Yeah, I I think those things for me are really, um, and and I would say it's community. So mentorship for sure, but I would put um, Alan in the category of community. Like there was a community of people I was doing theology with. My Japanese American supervisor, my um, Korean American peer that later became my supervisor, Kathy Kong, yeah. Greg Howe. I mean, it was all Asian Americans. I was on an all Asian American team, me and one white girl. And um, and so I was learning theology in community. I was learning about the first gen, second gen divide in the Asian American church. I was, I mean, I was just learning, you know, um, and that community of learning my students, three fourths of them were Asian American. And so what could I do, but to le- ask questions and learn, you know, from my Latina location to their, um, to their, their location. And so I think a community, a diverse yeah. community is very important socioeconomically, ethnically, racially, uh, generationally. I, I really believe that a multi-class, a uh, multi-ethnic multi-generational um, community is a gift to those of us that want to deconstruct and decolonize what we've been given. Yeah. Because I know lots of people that are like, you know, 22 to 25 and all they do is talk to 22 to 25 year olds. And that's not helpful. Um, it's not helpful at all because you don't have the scope of what's what's coming and what has been. And so I think I usually ask them, those are really great ideas. Like, have you shared those with anybody who doesn't have three degrees? Because you're using words that don't make sense to most people in my setting. And it's not that they're not brilliant and wise. It's that you're using trade language that doesn't make sense here. Um, Even though you come from the same ethnic or racial community. So I think community, diverse community is really important. And I think exposure of any kind. So I don't think you need to get on a plane and travel anywhere. I think all of our cities and towns and um, are full of people who are different than us. Um, and so exposure to different things is important. Like listening to children talk about the world is exposure to what is coming up in this next generation. You know, um, so oftentimes I'll, I'll be, I would be around at church and, you know, I'm old. So I just like, listen, I have nothing to say with all the cool teenagers that are there. And they just talk about lots of really interesting things. And I just listen and I'm like, wow, that's what they talk about. Okay. And I, I watch, I follow them. I watch what they post as like, not a way as like police them, but actually as a way to like hear them and lean into what they care about. And um, it's what it's good cultural exegesis. It's like just listening and, and exposing yourself to different things. Um, and I think um, the third thing that has been really important for me is just um is, is the centrality of scripture. Like God's, God's truth doesn't change, but the location from which it was written and the location in which we are at is changing. And so therefore, if I'm going to understand what the story of God and God's people says, then I have to understand their cultural location, the political landscape, the cultural customs, and I need to be able to build a bridge from that to where I'm at. And so even just this week, somebody was talking about a passage and I was like, that is so interesting. I would never have seen that before. Wow. Oh, it was a woman in our church that sends, she just wrote a book actually, but she sends these like um, daily devotional texts to the ladies in her small group Awesome. and she sends them to me too. And I was like, I never would have seen that in that text. And she doesn't have a theology degree. I was like, that is so wise. Yes, that is totally there. Um, and she's the mother of, um, three children that have um, different 
forms of like different disabilities. And so she's constantly navigating a world that is unjust in, in her, in her, you know, with her children and, and, and she's so wise. Um, and so I think that centering scripture and asking questions about you can't reconstruct faith without scripture, like you just can't. And so um, I think that oftentimes can get lost for people. It's like, there's so much pain and church hurt that we're just like, you know, just F it all and just walking away. And I just don't think that's the way forward. I think the way forward is to confront the things that we're wrestling with. And we see that in scripture. There's models of people wrestling with God. It's profound for you to say that we should be understanding, constructing, challenging our theology in community, that you don't need to buy a book to learn theology, that you can learn theology from embodied expressions in community. That's a very um, non-Western way of thinking about theology. Theology happens in an ivory tower. Theology happens from dudes with lots of degrees. Theology happens when you open up a book that's 400 pages. Theology happens with the reference point of the Reformation forward or something like that, when you're saying, no, theology happens across the table. Theology happens in community. Theology happens in, in churches. Theology happens when that mom sent you a text and you're receiving that. That's, that's wonderful. And that's a beautiful critique to hear of Western modes of, of theology. Let's transition to your book. It's called The Next Worship, Glorifying God in a Diverse world. It overlaps a lot with the aims of this season. So I'm, I propose that all theology is cultural, local, and contextual. That's something you just brought up. On page 35 of your book, you write, quote, worship is cultural and contextual. Why is this so important for Christians to understand? Okay. So um, you're, you're correct in your comment about theology happens everywhere. Um, and it doesn't just happen in a book because that, I think that is what that statement is trying to get to. It's that we do theology. We think about God, you know, our thoughts about God, we form our ideas about ourselves in the presence of our creator from our location. And so we're, we, we're embodied people. Like mm. you guys can't see me, but I'm pulling at my shirt. Like we're embodied people. We live in this flesh. And so we speak a language and language has meaning because in Spanish, there are so many more words than there are in English to say the same thing. And so we're limited actually in English, I think, to say the things we want to say about God and, and the world um, because the English language is really so limiting. Um, and so imagine that you're doing theology from your, you know, 21st century, you're doing theology from the 21st century in a, in a social media world, in the, th- the place that we're living. And we're trying to understand what's happening to two refugee women in the book of Ruth in a time of, of poverty and starvation and political upheaval and all these kinds of things. And you're thinking to yourself, who in the world would understand what's happening in that book? There are lots of people in the world that would understand people from that region right now, today, from the wow. same place um, who are attaching themselves to one another and saying, you, where you go, I will go. And, and your God will be my God because they have no other way to do life. And so why are we like preferencing somebody who's sitting in an air conditioned office writing about it just because they learned the Hebrew so they can tell us like that actually means God's loving kindness. Well, yeah, we all can look that up. Okay. So who's going to have more wisdom about that experience than the woman who's actually done that. And so I think 
um, our, what I'm trying to say is that our, our worship, our practices, our theology, our way of doing faith is, is located in our position, in our bodies, in our culture. And it's contextual. It's shaped by those contexts and, and, and those places. And so um, how we read scripture, how we understand what a passage is saying, um, how we sing, whether we stand or sit or clap or don't clap, all those things are encultured. In, in and so yeah. we all know that. I mean, go to a church that's not your own ethnic or racial group and you'll be like, why are they doing that? You know, from a different generation, join a worship service from a different generation. Like, what are they doing? You know, um, and so I think the idea is just to say there is no normal, there is no normal center worship and the rest of us are another kind of worship. There is no normal worship and African-American worship. There is white Western worship shaped by, shaped by either the Dutch, the Germans, you know, the, the Swedes, yeah. you know, so, and there's African Ugandan worship and there's Costa Rican worship and all of us have worship that's contextual. And when we look at what the worship scene is now, as far as like, whether it's in a hymnal or on a screen, staring at a bright light, you know, smoke around, whatever it is, those songs are written in a place. So that is why it's so alarming to me that via iTunes, Spotify, and all the rest of these, um, you know, kind of uh, digital spaces, we have basically like 10 people in a couple of churches on three continents writing theology for the rest of the world. And it's like, well, what is their life? Have they ever experienced not just personal suffering, but collective generational suffering? Then how do they speak to a life of perseverance and resistance for people that are living in Palestine, Israel. Why would they be singing our songs? It doesn't make sense to me. And so, um, except for it's a big marketing ploy and there's a big, you know, money-making market out there for it. So I, I just, um, I get very concerned about people not understanding that their theology, their worship practices, their counseling are all culturally located. Yeah all of it. And so it's not to say that's bad. I mean, I hope me being a Latina uh, woman raised by a Colombian mom and an Argentine dad would be meaningful for the people that I love and live alongside of, but, but I know that it's true. So as I'm loving my Asian American students and my Asian American mentees, I'm not like unaware that they're hearing my voice much, much louder in their lives than my white uh, counterparts are because they're in a, an egalitarian culture where age doesn't really matter. Like all of us have something to contribute. And in reality, Western culture really utilize, um, um, idolizes youth. Like, and so, but if I'm speaking to people that come from a culture that is hierarchical, like Kenyan culture or Korean culture, um, then I have to be careful that I don't just give my advice all the time, um, which is really hard for me to do, but I have to be careful about it. Um, yeah. And recognize that there's a power distance there that is at play when I'm leading, preaching, counseling, etc. Because I'm, I am understanding the difference between my social location and their social location. Yeah. So that's what I meant by that. I meant there's nothing that's Christian. All of it is cultural. What's really good to hear you express is culture has limitations and our own cultural Christian expression has its strengths and its weaknesses. And what I'm hearing you say 
as you enter other spaces, as you're recognizing the gift that you are in those cross-cultural spaces, but you're also recognizing the limitations that you come with. And what is being claimed is in colonial North America, Western Christians are broadcasting their faith and broadcasting theology in a way without recognizing those limitations, admitting those limitations, and not saying that this is German theology, this is Swiss theology, this is Dutch theology. It just has become white theology in the colonial era, which is very dangerous. Um, you say worship is cultural and contextual. One other, one other thing that struck me hearing you speak, if theology is what we believe about God, which we could debate that definition, worship is an expression of our theology. It's our orthopraxy. It's what we do. And what you're saying in your book is, and what I'm hearing you say, is from our belief comes our worship, musical worship. And that can be very dangerous if we're claiming the way to understand God. And you talked about songs written from 10 individuals that are on iTunes and Spotify that are being broadcast around the world and how dangerous that can be, not even speaking to the context of specific people and how that can be dangerous. And if you guys haven't picked up the book, those of you who are listening, it's called The Next Worship, Glorifying God in a Diverse World. And one of the reasons why I wanted to interview Sandra so you could learn from her and whatever she says, but secondarily, in the book, you can swap out the word worship for theology in many places and get to the same conclusions that we're coming to in this season, and that is that theology is cultural and contextual. So in your introduction, you say multi-ethnic worship acknowledges and honors the diversity of people in the local and global church and teaches congregations to understand and honor that same diversity. Talk about that concept a little bit, multi-ethnic worship and what it does for us. Yeah. And actually I might have, I might edit that statement in my, the trainings I do now, because I would say multi-ethnic worship acknowledges, honors, and embodies the diversity of people in the local and global church. And so to your point earlier, actually what we do flows out of what we believe, what we practice flows out of what we believe and what we practice influences what we believe. Boom. And I'll get to that in a minute. So it's kind of like the chicken or the egg. What's it's a circular, you know? Yeah. Um, if I grow up singing songs that are all in one language from one hymnal written by one ethnic group of people, and I sing those songs over and over, it shapes my understanding. If all I do is sing the songs and I don't do anything else with my body or with my life, except sing the songs, leave the church, go have a great brunch and go on with my life, then I'm taught something about that. If I sing those songs in English and we we hear a sermon about ourselves and we never talk about what's happening in our country, that's exploiting those who are marginalized. And we never talk about what's happening in the world, whether it's a natural disaster or a political um, um, you know, unrest or whatever. Then we learn that church has nothing to do with anybody but ourselves and God. Mm. So multi-ethnic worship, and I would say worship that really moves us towards reconciliation and justice, is worship that acknowledges that we live in a diverse world. We just do. That only 11% of the world's Christians live in North America and the West. 
the, the majority of Christians are brown. The majority of Christians are poor. And the majority of Christians are um, are living in political and economic unrest that we would never understand. They have complete, most of them are communal. Most of them are hierarchical. I mean, you pick any cultural value or experience, the majority of people in the church are not like us. We are, one of those things is not like the other. That's us in the church, Western Christians. And yet we shape our Christianity and our worship in a way that doesn't acknowledge that we belong to a diverse group of people. That's why we get shocked later on when we're like, you know, people are talking about racial reconciliation or racial justice. And they're talking about the, you know, going on global. It's like an extra later on. We learn that the church is global. We have to go and save them. When in reality, God is already present and doing things in those spaces. And so what does it look like to partner with them? Um, But we have to acknowledge that the church is diverse. The other one is that we have to honor that in some way. We have to say that's meaningful. Like, to my black sister that's raising black sons in the city of Chicago, it is meaningful to me that you are doing that. And that is a different experience than mine. Yeah. And when you come to church and you're in worship and you're saying these things, I want to hear them from your perspective. I want to know that they're, that I'm coming alongside of you in solidarity and praying, not just for myself and not just singing for myself, that God is present and our protector, but I want to sing that over you and your family and your sons, because I see that you're scared today. Yeah. And so what does it look like for worship to honor that? Um, and our practices to honor that, and then to embody it in some way, like we should be receiving songs and prayers and poetry and theology and images from people, from our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. And we should be utilizing them in worship and centering them and their ideas in worship. So saying like, we're a global church. So therefore what's happening with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Syria, that's going to make a difference for us here on the West side of Chicago. And it's not just going to be about black and Brown communities. It's going to be about our brothers and sisters who also understand what it's like to be refugees. Um, And so what do we do as a practice in our church to include them? Do we at least like base bottom line when we read scripture and we teach scripture, do we teach our children that these are people that are from the Palestinian space that we talk about, that they're from Syria, that they're from Turkey, that they're from Ethiopia? Do we actually say this is a sister that was African? That's who we're talking about here in this story. Yeah. Or is every character just like a normal quote unquote person. And then we just see them as white baseline. I usually tell people like, you don't need to make up a whole new curriculum. Just when you actually teach the Bible stories to your little kids, name their names, like talk about where they're from, talk about the culture, show them on a map that it's not in Iowa or Indiana or California or Florida, show them where they're at. So I do that as a preacher. I say, hey, everyone, pull out your phones today. We're going to be talking about this in Revelation. And this is the city of blank. And it's actually in modern day Ismir. So look up Ismir on Google Maps. You see where it is? Okay. Think about all where you've seen that map and where you've heard Turkey in the news recently. This is the context that we're talking about today. So you're helping people understand that we have a global faith. And then you're honoring that and you're embodying it and bringing it into the experience in some way, not to be representational or to tokenize, but to actually form believers and Christians that understand the actual Bible that we read. A few things you hit on 
is uh, including the experiences of those in your church within worship expressions. You hit on something for teachers and churches actually doing the work of understanding the sociocultural situation, naming names, talking about countries, bringing up news that's happening around the world so that we're decentering whiteness as we talk about the Bible. Practically speaking, what are some other things that church leaders can begin doing to see Christianity and its global scope? That's a hard question for me because I'm just like, it is. I don't know what to say. It is It is global. I, I, yeah. I don't know. You tell me. I mean, I'm just like, turn on the news. Um, you know, at, at bottom line, I was given this book um, in as a student called Operation World. I think that's what it's called. It was just a I prayer book one. for the world. Yeah, it's a big, thick prayer book. So I feel like maybe you can, like, I, what I do as a practice is I I just... I, I'm one of those people that actually looks at news. So I just go to bbc.com world, you know, like world section and I see what's happening around the world. And then I, I pray about it and I talk about it and I bring it into like, so therefore I'm informed. So when I'm preaching or teaching, I, I, I understand what's happening around the world. Um, you know, watching the news with your children when you, when in, in the evenings to see what's happening in your own community and bringing that into your prayers and into your conversations around what does it look like to be a good neighbor? What does it look like? Jesus tells us to love your neighbor. So what does it look like for us to love our neighbor? So I think really we are, we're choosing not to be informed. I think, I think we're actually making choices to only surround us with things, surround ourselves with things that, um, that we want to be concerned about because yeah. we have access to be inf- uh, informed about pretty much anything. Um, another thing I think you should do is if you belong to a denomination or a network or have relationships through, you know, an association that you partner with another church in a different space and that you ask them for their prayer requests. And then you ask them for what's happening and you ask them for like, are there initiatives that you're doing? You know, like, so let's say you're partnering with the church in, Jordan and they're doing a um a boot a church church planting like boot camp type thing where they're teaching church planters in the country of Jordan and so you're like wow like tell us about what are you guys doing and how can we pray for you and then maybe even ask them can we see the materials you guys are using because maybe there's something that could inform how we're thinking about reaching out to our community um so i think partnership relationship i mean it's the same things exposure yeah. community yeah um but i think it starts with um, asking yourself the question, is the community that I lead, like whether it's a student group or a small group or a church or your family, you know, like your own family, do they, have I lived in such a way? And have I have, have I practiced my faith in such a way that they know that the church is global Yeah. or at baseline that the church is not all just like us, whatever that just like us is. And how do I, take a step towards helping them understand. So in our family, for example, we, my kids are are little, so we taught them from like, they're very like, I don't know, two or three years old when they start singing, you know, they they don't really make form words, but they're trying. Um, We've sung in all different languages. And so it's not odd for them to go into a church space and, and be invited to sing in different languages they are exposed to all kinds of people. And so they're not like shocked that a person of a different race or ethnicity or culture or class would be in their space. Um, so I think it really is like, what, what few steps can I take that are, that are intentional, but natural to me 
uh, the things that I care about, the things that are in my community, um, that I can take a step forward. And please don't have that be read a book. Um, don't if, if your if your next thing is like read Sandra's book. Okay, fine, of course, buy it, read it. Yeah. But I think we've done enough reading this year. I think we've done a lot of reading, and I think that it's time to to ask the question like. Well, really, it's just time to be a little bit more creative. I just feel like yeah. we have more, we have to have more uh, innovation and more creativity than we have right now. So the book basically just helps, and it's not just for pastors and, and churches, but it just helps Christians think about how we think about worship and how we practice worship. Yep. It could be in your own personal space or in, in the communities that you lead. And then it, it actually says like, here's how you would want to shape, here's ideas of how you would want to shape um, worship. For example, like, I talk in in the book about sharing leadership. I think if you're going to be a church that that expresses that the whole body of Christ is important, then you need to be having more than one person every Sunday morning preaching. Yeah, you need to ha- be having more than just one person leading worship every Sunday. Yeah. You need to share the shaping and the creation of the worship experience for the community. So that's that's, that's an example. Great. A few final questions. One is about what's happening more broadly in Christianity across the spectrum for those that are younger who are listening and maybe are coming to terms with the impact of whiteness on their faith, white supremacy. They're seeing what's happening with evangelical vote and Trump. And there's just a deep suspicion of church. What message would you, would you have for those younger brothers and sisters who are kind of on the cusp of giving up? Well, I would first say that if going to church is a choice for you, then you probably live in the top 1% of the world Boom. because a lot of people around the world don't only go to church to be taught, informed and inspired. They go to church because that's where their livelihood, their community, their social network, their, um, So I think that idea of like, where do I want to belong? Where do I want to go? That is super white, super Western and super privileged. Mm. And I know, cause I struggle with it too. I'm like, do we really want to like, Oh God, I mean, I love my church. So, so, you know, if you're listening, Hey, grace and peace folks, you know, I love you. But like, there are times where I'm like, Oh gosh, what what about, so, and my friend's planting this church. We have these choices. So it's like, Oh, I can, I can basically disembody myself from a community and go somewhere else. That's a privilege. It's also a way of, it's a cultural, it's a cultural value. Like I get to choose my community versus like, this is just my community. So I'm, I'm going to work to make this community, a community of flourishing and justice and wholeness. So I'm not saying you should stay in abusive places. That's not what I'm saying. Please hear me. I'm wagging my finger. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) What I'm saying is you have to recognize that the mere fact that you can ask that question is actually a huge privilege. And so just sit with that for a minute. And just go, okay, let me tuck that into my journal later. And I'll talk, I'll talk to myself and Lord about that later. I would say, yes, but going to church is hard. Being a part of church right now is really hard. It is very hard. And um, that's because we are really hard to be around y'all. Um, we, uh, we are lonely yet. We are always telling about our lives. We want to be discipled and mentored and, and, and loved, but we don't want people to tell us what to do. We, um, you know, we want to change the world, but we also just want to sit back and watch Netflix. Like we're just difficult people. Like I just, I feel like we're, and right now in this, this COVID pandemic time, which we are still in, by the way, it's just even hard to know what you want. Um, so I would say it's okay to rest. Like it's okay to step away from, a quote unquote attending service. Like that's not what I'm talking about. Belonging to a community of faith is the way we express 
our belief in Jesus. Mm. It's all over the New Testament and the Old Testament. The belonging to the community is a part of the connection with God. So the bridge diagram where one individual walks across a bridge that has a cross on it to one to God over on the other side and hugs Jesus, you know, that's just not the gospel that's represented in the Bible. The invitation that God makes from Genesis to Revelation is come and be a part of my family, come and be a part of this community. And so therefore, whether that's a small group of friends in your, in your living room or a large building with parking lot attendants. I don't care about that. What I care about is, do you have a faith community that you are submitting one to the other, mm. holding one another, like towards a lifestyle of, of faith, of compassion, of justice, of honesty, of vulnerability? Do you have that? Because if you don't have that, it's really just transactional. It's like, Jesus, give me this. I have a, I I don't, literally, I don't understand that kind of faith. It's not in the Bible. So I think we want that. I think we want that. I don't think anyone doesn't want that. I think we all want to belong. Um, The problem is that we have institutions and structures that don't oftentimes facilitate belonging. And so if you need to create, I always tell people like, even if you don't, want to plant your own church? Cause I don't think most people should be doing that. What if you created a community within the church? Like, what if you made like a small, like a Sunday lunch? We do this as a family. We have people over for Sunday, Sunday dinner. And it's just like people we want to see on Sundays because it's our Sabbath and it's relaxing and we want to be with them and we want to have lunch with them. And sometimes we make like um, turkey and stuffing and all like white people, Thanksgiving food. And we tell our white friends, this is the Sunday to come folks. This is for you. You know, like, <laughs> for like you. yes, you know, gravy, you know, and then another time we'll make like a hot pot or something, you know, some noodles. Or something. So I think we need that. We want to belong. And I think I, I just want to say, I get it. It's hard. We are difficult people, all of us. And the church is going through some growing pains right now because it's having to undo. It's needing to undo some things in order to be free. And the question, I think this is a question maybe you all who are listening are thinking this is, is the community I'm a part of willing to repent and believe, which is the invitation that Jesus gives, repent and believe. Are they willing to say, yeah, we just didn't have it right. We just, man, did we make this about the things it wasn't about? Like, let's, 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 let's change this. Let's make it different. Or are they just so stuck in their ways that it really is just idol worship in the form of what seems like Christianity, but really isn't. And therefore you need to find another community or make a community within that community. So I don't have that in my space. I feel like the church that I'm a part of, it's not perfect at all, but it very much looks like to me, the things that Jesus talks about. And I think that if you're a white person in that space, that you probably need to be led by people of color. Yeah. Because I think your healing is going to be found through leaders of color, not through other white people who are also disgruntled with the church. Um, if you're, if you're a person of color and you're processing your own stuff, I think finding other people from within your own experience and imagining what could be like creating a new space again, informal, um, that, that holds you for a while until you can figure that out. Cause I don't know how to wrestle with faith unless you're actually like wrestling with God. I think wrestling with faith without wrestling with God and in the word I think that's just actually leaving, but you don't want to say you want to leave. Maybe not. I don't know. Last question, Sandra. What is key to peace in the 21st century? I asked everybody this question. Love to hear. Okay. The key to peace in the 21st century is centering 
those who are most impacted by the lack of peace. That's the key. If we really want to know, like, how do we live and pursue a collective flourishing for this world? I think those who are most impacted by oppression, injustice, poverty, they have the answer. And so if and when we can find a way to center those communities and the leaders within those communities, we should. I I mean, I look at the church in the U.S., for example, I can't speak of all the West, but the U.S., and I'm like, the church in the U.S. is never going to have revival until it deals with its original sin of racism and white supremacy, and it puts leaders of color at the center of the movement forward. And I don't see that happening. I see repeated gatherings, conferences, publishing that continues to have people that actually colonized faith ask, how do we decolonize this faith? And I would say to that, by the way, I don't believe white people decolonize faith. I think they deconstruct it, but you can't decolonize something that you've had a part in colonizing. You can't decolonize something that you've been complicit in making and upholding. And so I think that theologians, abuelas, aunties, grandmothers, neighbors, kids on our street, 16-year-old rappers who are theologians and, and the guys that make all of our beats for all of our music, who have thoughts about God and the world, I think they are going to lead us forward. And they're the key. I really do. I think that the the scripture makes it very clear that those who are humble they hear God. And I'm not sure that those of us with all of our education, competencies, entitlement, and arrogance, I don't think we can hear God as well. Sandra, thanks for being with us. I wanted to ask, where can we find your work, your books, your teaching, the book we just talked about, The Next Worship? Where do folks find you? Yeah, you can find me at Sandra Van Opsel, and you can also find me at Chasing Justice underscore. And I'm on Instagram. There I am with my thoughts about daily life. I try to try to keep it in check sometimes because I do get angry. But if I have a question, that's where I'm going to put it on Instagram. So you can find me there. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, We the Peace. You can find more resources at madeforpax.org and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at PAX. This is We the Peace.